Hi, this is Malayan Verveer. And this is Kim Azzarelli. We are co-authors of the book, Fast Forward, How Women Can Achieve Power and Purpose. And you're listening to Seneca's Conversations on Power and Purpose. Welcome to this special edition. This new six-part series called Getting to Equal will change the way you think about women and leadership. And it comes at a time when women's leadership has never been more crucial. We have two amazing leaders who are guest hosting these six episodes. Carolyn Tastad, Group President, North America, and Deanna Bass, Vice President, Global Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion, both from P&G, one of the largest consumer goods companies in the world. Together, Carolyn and Deanna have created an impressive gender equality strategy for P&G, and it's a strategy that's really breaking new ground on these issues in the private sector. And they'll be joined by incredible guests from all walks of life. In today's episode of Getting to Equal, Carolyn and Deanna talk with Tina Chen, the president and CEO of Time's Up. They'll discuss the workplace obstacles, including sexual harassment and unequal pay that make it hard for women to succeed. And they offer solutions and perspectives to help address those issues. Carolyn and Deanna, thanks so much for joining us again today. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your conversation with Tina Chen. Thank you, Kim. For the last few years, there has been a sustained and focused national conversation on the experiences of women in the workplace. And no conversation about women in the workplace would be complete without talking about the hard things. One of those topics is sexual harassment and the entire ecosystem of issues that can make the workplace uncomfortable, unproductive, disrespectful, and even unsafe for women. These issues can hold women back, keep them from advancing, and even motivate them to leave the workforce entirely. You know, Deanna, it's something that every company has to confront and must be constantly alert to. Companies have a mandate to construct a work environment where everyone feels safe and where everyone, every individual can thrive. Now, while workplace sexual harassment has been around for as long as women have been in the workplace, In late 2017, things reached a tipping point with revelations about Harvey Weinstein, followed by headlines about so many other once powerful leaders. But this is a broader issue than sexual harassment. It's related to pay equality and the fair treatment of people in the workplace. And what's important to remember is that when these topics are not discussed, or when unfairness goes unspoken, and when action is not taken, you get a culture where entire groups of people are marginalized and undervalued. You're so right, Carolyn. I am very happy to welcome a woman who has, throughout her career, been at the forefront of the fight for workplaces that work for everyone. Tina Chen is president and CEO of Time's Up, which was started at the moment when the sexual harassment became a front-burner issue. Formerly, Tina was assistant to President Obama, Executive Director of the White House Council on Women and Girls, and Chief of Staff of former First Lady Michelle Obama. Tina has a long history of advocating for gender equality, particularly for working women. Time's Up is dedicated to ensuring workplaces that are safe, dignified, and fair for women of all kind. I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast with us today, Tina. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Tina, let's start with what Time's Up is and why it was started. You know, you were there from the beginning as you co-founded the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund uh, back in 2017. Tell us about all of that. 
Well, you know, as you mentioned, there was this moment in October of 2017, when thanks to the reporting of the New York Times and the New York Magazine, um, the stories about Harvey Weinstein cracked wide open. And what happened was women all of a sudden realized they weren't alone. Up until that point, so many of these women who were survivors of sexual harassment in the entertainment business thought they had suffered alone because actually that's one of the that's part of what I call the predator's playbook, right? Which was to keep people silent and siloed from one another so that the full dimensions of the problem were unknown. Um, and spontaneously, these women started gathering in LA in late October just to come together to support one another, having realized they weren't alone. But to their credit, they very quickly turned their personal pain into action. They wanted to figure out what could they do, re- recognizing they were women of privilege with platforms that would affect women in other industries and help them. And I happen to be in Los Angeles. A lot of my life is just being in the right place at the right time. You just never know. And one of the things that became clear that we needed to do was to create some mechanism to get lawyers to help defend these women. Because the other part of the Predator's Playbook was playing itself out. And that was as women started speaking up using the hashtag MeToo that Tarana Burke had launched several years earlier, was they were getting threatened with defamation lawsuits because that's what used to happen. If you spoke out, you were going to get sued, you know, by the predator. And that could have shut the whole thing down. It also became clear to me something as a lawyer I did not know. And that was, although you can get attorney's fees in Title VII cases for sexual harassment, you can't get it if you're a low-wage worker, right? Because your wages are so low. So the recovery is so low. So if you are a victim of sexual harassment as a restaurant worker, as a farm worker, you can't get somebody to take your case. And so we needed, you know, that legal defense fund for them. So I'm really proud that the National Women's Law Center took it on. But the part of Time's Up that I'm now, you know, the president and CEO of is our advocacy, you know, and impact lab research arm of the movement to really, you know, expand the work that we're doing. And what we're doing is, number one, continuing to focus on survivor justice always, right? Supporting survivors when they speak up, like the Harvey Weinstein um, survivors during the Weinstein trial. But we also know we don't want to just keep dealing with the aftermath, right? You know, we don't want to just be in a world where we're picking up the pieces, right, after sexual harassment occurs, you know, to really keep sexual harassment from happening. You have to deal with all the structural barriers that are keeping women from having safe, fair, and dignified work, you know, that are keeping us from having fully inclusive workplaces where women and people of color and LGBTQA and disabled workers can fully thrive, as you said, you know, in the intro and move up the, the scale. We know if, if workplaces are more inclusive, they are safer, right? And, um, you know, we need to then therefore address all those structural barriers. So it is things like pay equity and paid leave and fair hiring and promotion practices, you know, the whole panoply of structural barriers in our workplaces. And so that's our mission is to, you know, also work for safe, fair, and dignified work through changing, you know, um, uh, people, company, and laws. So, you know, really, you know, addressing, you know, public policy, addressing companies and private policy and uh, addressing, you know, our culture and what we can do broadly in our world with people. So important. That's so important, Tina. And I really appreciate the fact that you talk about fixing the structural issues. Uh, We talk about it in our language as fix the system, but it is about getting at much more uh, breadth of what happens in the workplace. And so I'm, you know, there's such a significant impact to the workplace, particularly workplaces where harassment and um, it, it is part of the culture. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
No, it's an important question. I mean, when you when sexual harassment is happening, that's a symptom. It's a symptom of a toxic workplace, right? Once you get to the point, you know, of um, you know, actual sexual assaults happening in the workplace, you've really got something very broken, you know, within a workplace. And let's be clear, sexual harassment occurs on a spectrum. You know, we talk, you know, there's a lot right. of attention to the Harvey Weinstein or the Les Moonves, you know, types of actual criminal sexual assault that were happening in those cases. But ha- harassment isn't just that. It's also, you know, the more subtle verbal you know, harassment that occurs, you know, based on someone's gender or based on someone's race or disability, you know, the, the cutting jokes, right. The belittling that happens, you know, then there's also sort of an escalation that looks like it's favorable. The, I like what you're wearing and how about some drinks and then let's go on a business trip. And, you know, it, you know, if, if at each moment, none of, as a manager, you don't stop that, you don't address those microaggressions and those lesser forms of harassment, you wind up with a workplace that's escalated all the way to a place that's unsafe. And that affects your entire workplace, right? It's not just the fact that the women have to suffer it. They're not as productive. They're not able to bring their full selves to the workplace. They will leave your workplace. So you're going to lose your talent. We'll have high turnover rates. Um, You know, there's also the bullying that's not even sexual at all you know, toxic workplace culture. And that's not even illegal, but the legal, the bar for let bad behavior is really low when you lose, use, use the legal definitions, because things like just the equal opportunity bully, the guy who yells at everyone and throws telephones at people's heads, it's not illegal. And in fact, the winning defense in sexual harassment cases is to say, oh, I don't just harass women. I harass everybody. And if you harass everybody, you win. You win the sexual harassment case, but I would it's submit. Unbelievable. Right. I would submit if you're, and you all run, comp, you're running a company, right? As managers, that's probably not the workplace you want, right? That is not the kind of thriving, productive workplace that you want to have. Um, and, and so that's why you've got to address culture, workplace culture, you know, broadly, because that's what we're trying to fix. Um, and all of these other ways in which you make sure you have a diverse and inclusive culture. Um, is part of it, how you bring people who are diverse into the workplace, but then also how people treat one another in the workplace. Um, And I'm sure you all know this, um, is that tone at the top matters, right? You know, it starts at the top of a company, you know, and I've been saying to CEOs that I've talked with, look, this is every bit as important right now, how you fix your culture as your new technology is, right? Or the latest real estate investment you're going to make as a company. Because your workforce is your talent. And, you know, right now, you know, the other thing that happened, sort of the negative enforcement from the Harvey Weinstein moment was all of a sudden companies realized, oh, there's risk here, right? It's not just something that's kind of like a nice to do for my employees thing. If I don't pay attention to culture, there's huge enterprise risk here. Um, And I think that was a motivator for companies to start changing. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we talk a lot about is that uh, you know, in this work, you have to really hold two realities. And one reality is that most men don't harass women. And the other reality is that most women do not lie about their experience of harassment or hostile work environments. I mean, both of those things are true. And so, you know, peeling back the layers of the complexity of this issue in the workplace is really difficult. 
research tells us that you're absolutely right. That is a very small percentage. You know, it's, you know, somewhere less than 10% of, of men are, you know, pr- you know, the people who are committing, you know, 90% of the sexual assault. And the problem there is they're repeat offenders. Like when you tend to do this once, you tend to do it over and over again, which is why it's so important as employers to catch that, right? So that it doesn't happen over and over. And that's why that this, this sort of silence that grew up around silencing survivors and not talking about it in a company and not people, you know, employment actions being taken in secret. So you didn't know who was a sexual harasser um, and they could move to another part of the company, for example, because it wasn't identified, you know, um, creates the problem and perpetuates it. And you are absolutely right. I get the question all the time about what about false reporting, right? And again, what we know from the sexual assault field, and there's been study after study to try to demonstrate you know, false reporting. And nobody's been ever, ever able to document anything higher than a seven to 8% rate of false reporting, right? Because think about it, people, what you have to go through as a survivor, why would you just make that up and bring it forward, right? And, and so the vast majority of women who raise these claims, you know, aren't lying about it. And, but here's the system. We don't, we believe at times up, it isn't believe all survivors. That's not our call. You know, it is, Survivors need to be heard and they're, you know, what they're saying needs to be taken seriously. And there does need to be due process. You know, we're not saying don't investigate and don't come out with a conclusion at the end. And if the conclusion at the end is it didn't happen, well then, okay, Joe, but we need a fair process where the survivors, you know, story was taken seriously and investigated, not just simply dismissed or swept under the rug, which is what typically happens. Have you seen any impact uh, during the pandemic of either increased or decreased uh, impact of of harassment, hostile work environment experiences of women? You know, remember, harassment doesn't require physical presence, right? And I think the misnomer is harassment's only happening when I get you in the hotel room. That's not, that's maybe the far end of the extreme, but harassment can happen on Zoom calls. Right. You know, what people, what, what people, you know, are people who are shut down when they speak, people, whether they're called, you know, belittling names or treated like they don't have, you know, they aren't, you know, a serious participant in the Zoom meetings. We've heard stories of women who are getting, you know, harassed by their, you know, um, uh, manager because they're calling them at three o'clock in the morning, making all sorts of demands on them, you know, over the phone or again, belittling their work, work product and their conduct. Um, so yes, harassment can happen remotely. It's harder for managers to spot. It's one of the things that prompted us actually in this moment of crisis to put out something called the Times of Guide to Equity and Inclusion During Crisis, uh, which folks can get, you know, you can text the word leaders to 30644 to get it's open source, free copy of the guide downloaded. Don't forget that when you're working remotely, not everyone's home space is a safe space. Right. So the domestic violence hotline has seen increases in calls, you know, with everyone confined in the home. It's not always a safe space for everyone. And employers should be thinking about that, too. We'll be back after this break. Tina, this is such a fascinating conversation. I want to pivot a little bit, and we want to shift a discussion to the issue of pay equality. Can Let's talk about what you're seeing right now for women in the area of pay equality. Well, we just did a survey, actually, at Time's Up, um, 
Uh, in the summer, we did a, a um, national survey with Tressa Undum at Perry Undum um, Research, you know, um, to find out what people are thinking about pay equity during a pandemic, during an economic crisis. I was heartened because it showed that over an overwhelming majority of both men and women. So we're talking about like 80% overall in the survey, 75% of men even agreed that addressing pay equity, even during a crisis, is a critical, important um, priority that we all need to address. Um, it's very different because I lived through the last Great Recession in the White House, right, and working, you know, on the White House Council on Women and Girls. And what we found back then was people just thought they just wanted a job, you know, and issues of pay equity and paid leave were just personal issues for me to figure out not public policy issues for legislators or something for my manager and my employer to figure out. And that has shifted in the last decade where people now recognize that these issues of the structural barriers for working families are issues that we all need to care about. Employers need to care about, public policymakers need to care about. Um, and that really showed on our, in our, in our survey. But, you know, the downside was, you know, the huge impact that pay inequality is having, especially on Black women and Latinx women. You know, a majority of Latinx women in our survey don't have $200 in their bank account right now. They are struggling to just make ends meet. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that goes for, you know, like 48% of Black women. Um, and meanwhile, that, that's 12% of white men are experiencing that. And, you know, we also asked, you know, what what would it take, right? What do you need to succeed in your job? And pay quality, you know, was one. They also know that they're not getting pay equity because of race discrimination and gender discrimination. Um, you know, we've, you know, got majorities of black and brown women who are saying they had to leave jobs because of race and gender discrimination that was occurring. Um, and they also point the way to the things that we need. And it's all of the system fixes that we've been talking about. They need jobs that include paid leave and paid sick leave, you know, and better promotion practices. Um, and those are the things. So, you know, even in a pandemic moment, even in an economic crisis, what we're trying to say to companies is this is the opportunity to build your company back better, you know, build our economy back better, um, make sure that we are more resilient for the future. Because if we are, you know, this is a time when you've actually stripped your company down, right? If you furloughed everybody, then re-examine your pay policies and start bringing people back into jobs where the pay inequity has been fixed. You know, so there, there's an opportunity in this horrible crisis. And that is, I've been likening, you know, what we're going through to like stripping our economy. If it was a house down to the bare foundations, right? Everything is out of the house because everything is broken. And the opportunity now is to build our structures back better right? When build and incorporate in them the things that we need. You know, the think about paid sick leave. I've been talking a lot about paid sick leave as an example of this. You know, we are one of, you know, oh yeah, just a handful of countries around the world that does not have some form of national paid sick leave policy. Well, what if we, and then we had to scramble, right? To put an emergency one into the CARES Act. Think what it would have been if we had had one, if we had a national paid sick leave policy going into the pandemic. If businesses had been able to already build that cost into their business plan, if workers knew they had paid sick leave to take so they could stay home if they were sick without risking their job or their paycheck or their family member was sick, you know, think how much better we would have been and we could be right now in managing this pandemic. 
And I would suggest to all of the business leaders who are listening, you do not have to wait for Congress to act if Congress is acting slow or your state legislature. You can set the policies in your company that are more forward-leaning and forward-looking. And I would suggest if you do that right now, you are the business that's going to come out of the pandemic quicker, come out of the recovery quicker, and will be more resilient and ready for the next crisis because we know another one will come eventually and you will be able to build your business back better and more, you know, stronger with more talent that is deeply invested in your business. You're absolutely right, Tina. And I, I want to go back to pay equality through that same lens. It's so important that pay equality also be seen as an issue by both women and men. It has to become the minimum standard for companies, looking at gender, race, disability, and more. And, and there's a related topic which sets an even higher standard, and that is wealth equality, which is starting to be a broader conversation around the world. Wealth equality is about the amount of wealth that women and men accumulate over their careers. It relies on having women get equal access to higher paying fields and higher paying jobs. And it requires all of us to look at our total talent pool when we're making advancement decisions. Otherwise, those disparities remain at every level. And then the compounding impact of that creates a significant wealth gap for women versus men. At P&G, we've declared that we want to have 50-50 representation at all levels of our company and 40% representation of multicultural individuals in the U.S. We are working hard to ensure that we have women equally represented in the highest paying roles, whether that's leading a business unit, leading a technical center, or a manufacturing plant. And I'm really proud to share that today, 48% of our managers are women. Over 40% of our C-suite executives are women, and 50% of our independent directors on our board are women. Well, I'm familiar with the work at P&G, and you all have been doing (laughs) a great job. I mean, you've been intentional about it and put the work in, and that's what it requires. That is what it requires. Intentionality is a word we use so often. And as we've also said so many times, we know that women are highly effective, proven leaders. And we need to ensure that we give them that equal opportunity to lead. And in fact, on that note, Tina, I'd love to hear about the campaign you've started at Time's Up, which is called We Have Her Back. So we launched, you know, We Have Her Back in August, right? As Vice President Biden was a speculation about who would he pick as his VP nominee was happening. And myself and several other of my, you know, women women leaders that I know, we, we feel like we've been to this movie before. We knew what was coming, right? And we could see it even before a nominee was picked, the kind of misogynistic and also racial slurs and suggestive language um, that were being used. And, you know, we kind of decided we weren't going to sit quietly anymore about that. Um, and so we launched, you know, We Have Her Back in August. Hashtag We Have Her Back. Interestingly, we co-wrote, myself and several other women leaders co-wrote a memo to news editors um, just the weekend before uh, Senator Harris was picked as the VP nominee. And we sent it out that that Friday morning, uh, the weekend before, before there was a nominee saying, you know, we know he's going to pick a woman. Here's the things you should watch out for in your reporting. Don't call her ambitious. Don't focus on her clothes or what she looks like or what her husband did, you know, or her personal past. And lo and behold, 24, about 24 hours later, the New York Times ran a headline 
about wrist corsages and comparing, you know, like the last Geraldine Ferraro race to, you know, did Walter Mondale want to bring a wrist corsage to, to Geraldine Ferraro when they first met? And even worse, LA Times ran a story that compared, you know, the VP nominee selection process to The Bachelor and compared, you know, the White House to the ultimate fantasy suite. It's like horrific. And they proved the case of why we needed We Have Her Back. And there have been so many examples since then. And here's the problem, though. And here's how it relates to what's happening inside your company and other companies is when women leaders are talked about like that, we then, you know, there's a reason why we haven't been able to crack that highest glass ceiling of the presidency of the United States, because that's how we talk about women leaders in our political discourse. And therefore, we don't see women leaders as being able to occupy the highest office. But it's not just that, you know, political discourse is so permeated. You know, it is the reason why not only can you not see a woman as president of the United States or vice president of the United States, you don't see her as CEO of your company or a director of your company. You don't see her as a district manager at that level. You know, the server in a restaurant who aspires to be the manager of a restaurant, the restaurant owners don't see her in that way because we are get acculturated to thinking of women not as women leaders, but as contestants on The Bachelor. And that's why we did this. And it's so deep. I have to say, right, this is this is so much the social norms. And that's why we want we have our back. We're trying to call it out, not to do cancel culture. It's not that it's to get people to recognize the coded terms, the language they're using, and push back against it. And don't let that be part of your decision making process, whether it's voting, or trying to figure out who's going to be the next manager in your company. That's exactly right, Tina. You know, I want to go back to the perception and language we use about women. You were talking about this earlier, but it's not just about the vice presidential race, and it's not just about one woman. I mean, we're so numb to the language that's used in the media and online and in everyday conversations that we don't even hear it anymore. I just had to pause on that for a moment. You know, I I keep saying to Carolyn, I'm just so mad, and I don't know who I should be mad at. You don't know why you're mad, because it's just coming from all sorts of places and you can't even identify where it's coming from, right? I had an activist one describe me that we're all living in a soup, right? And when you're in the middle of the soup, you sort of can't see it, right? And you can't taste it and you can't, you don't know where the flavors are coming from, but they're surrounding you, right? You know, yes. you need to sort of pull back from the soup and taste it and be able to understand what's going on. And that's what we're trying to do with We Have Our Back is at least peel back that veil of what's the subtle signals that are affecting our culture. You know, culture is really important. It affects how we think about people. It affects how we treat one another. It, you know, it does affect the issues around um, tangible things like wealth inequality that we started talking about um, because it affects, you know, how people advance, how they're viewed in their workplace, how they're evaluated. You know, Tina, the other thing that I want to um, just go back to for a moment is your comments earlier about the importance of national sick leave, the importance of parental leave, the importance of flexibility in our policies that applies equally and gets used and adopted equally by men and women, because it also broadens that opportunity for men to play a bigger role at home with family, with childcare, with schooling, uh, with homework, with dental appointments, whatever the case might be. And, and that's another big important part of this, because the more that we can broaden the role and the, the norm for men, it also has a positive impact for women. You know, we have to start seeing um, women 
women's leadership as, as something that is highly effective and something we should expect, we have to begin to see that men uh, washing dishes or diapering babies or taking kids to school in the morning is also a norm that we should come to expect. And these policies are an important part of that as well. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned that. When I was in the White House, you know, we had a huge working families agenda that we did and we worked on. And we actually had the first ever White House summit on working families. Um, and in one of the lead up events to that large summit, we had sort of some mini events on specific issues. And one of them was on men and on stay at home dads, you know, and the support that they need. There was a Mets player who actually took two days off and missed a game or two because the, for the birth of his son and was roundly supported by the Mets, by the way, in Major League Baseball, but roundly criticized on sports radio, right? And we brought him in to talk about it. And there was a, there was a whole group of men who just were amazed they had, that they were at the White House talking about this. But the other thing that was striking is that we had some child psychologists, you know, a guy from Yale who came in and talked about the fact that it's demonstrated that if men are involved with their children, you know, in the zero to three range of their lives, that has lifelong effects, you know, on yes. their de- on child development, on child achievement. Absolutely. And you were absolutely right. These need to be policies that are parental leave, not maternal leave, you know, and men need to take it, right? So the other thing about tone at the top is we need leaders at the top of the business to set the tone in the business to take the leave. When we build safe, fair, and dignified work, we're building it for everyone, for everyone to succeed. You know, we had a conversation with Eve Rodsky, uh, the author of a book called Fair Play. And one of the things that we talked about with her on paid paternity leave is that not only is that really healthy for families, it's healthy for men, um, their outlook is better, but we also connected it back into the workplace that men who take paid paternity leave, paid parental leave, come back into the workplace and have much greater empathy for women that are in that cycle as well. Like they understand now what that all means. Um, and so I think in the world of creating workplaces that work for everyone, it bring, when, that, when they come back in, um, that is also helpful for the women that they're working with who are going through childcare leave as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and it, it is an ongoing thing. So it's not just during the leave moment, right? We're now experiencing a moment where schools are closed. So what, what are we doing during the day for kids if you've got school-age kids? But it's also if elder care, you know, if they're, if they're sick um, and yourself, self-care. So caregiving really needs to get broadened and defined. And I am terribly worried, you know, that we are in a new caregiving crisis with this pandemic where, you know, women are now opting out of the workforce because they have no choice. So there's no access to free or affordable childcare. And we, I'm deeply concerned that we will lose, you know, all the progress we've made on women's labor force participation, where we're now 50-50 in the labor force, that during the course of this pandemic, we're going to lose that. You know, I want employers to start thinking about if you've got a lot of empty space now because you're only bringing half your workforce back to the office, maybe you use that empty space so child age, you know, school age kids can come do their schoolwork, you know, one floor down from mom or dad you know, so that mom or dad can actually come into the office. I mean, I think we need to start getting a little disruptive and a little creative in how we deliver caregiving in this country and how do we support the wages of these essential workers who are our caregivers and who are predominantly women. We're taking the house down to the foundation and building it differently, building it in a new way. Again, I'm moving to a slightly new topic here, but another industry that can probably use a reset is tech, right? 
tech drives everything we do, everything we touch, but it also has this huge gender gap. You know, I have a computer science degree, and I think there were more women graduating from computer science when I graduated in the 80s than there are today, which is a crazy stat, right? And we need women in tech. We need women helping to design the products, the systems, and the world that we live in. Um, it, there's a fun fact. Uh, P&G has the highest, the nation's highest average rate of women credited with inventions, as determined by the number of patents that they've been assigned. Now, women inventors at P&G had a filing rate, I think it's about 29%, which is higher than institutions and companies like MIT, Microsoft, Amazon. Um, you know, and we make, we make Tide and Pampers and <laughs> Dawn, you know, but one of the reasons our female inventor rate is so high is that 51% of our employees working in research and development are women. And when you have diversity in invention, you get these products and applications that work for all people. So, you know, these reset moments are so important. Well, absolutely. They used to complain it was a pipeline problem. I don't actually think it's a pipeline problem anymore. We have increasing numbers of women with computer science backgrounds who are out there. They just are leaving, you know, and they're leaving because of the culture, right? The bro culture. And we've seen a lot of that, um, that happens. And I've addressed startups and I said, look, you're a startup, but you need to actually invest in this right way. Because what happens with these startup companies is... HR isn't invested in, you know, by the, by your angel investor, you're just de dealing with the product. And then all of a sudden you are big and international and you got thousands of employees and a terrible culture that does not support women or anyone who is different. And then it affects your, your product because, you know, there's all the stories, for example, about face recognition, right. And face recognition being sort of completely sort of, you know, not recognizing black people, not really fully recognizing women, but tech folks like to think, Oh, you know, Technology is neutral, right? It's just the algorithms, but the algorithms got written by people, right? And with people's biases, you know, built into it. Well, it's the same thing with women's heart disease not being recognized, right? Because everything's been built on the examples of male heart disease. I mean, there's so many places uh, that it's present and it's so important that we, that we get women represented so that our world can be a better place for all of us. So Tina, this has been such a great conversation. And I want to go back to one other thing that we talked earlier and just put it into words. What's bothering me so much about the corsage comment and then the bachelor comment is that it's just such a microaggression against all women and it keeps happening. Well, it is because um, as you know, the three of us are women who grew up in business, right? And, you know, I was, a, I was a corporate litigator for 23 years before I went to the White House and loved it. And yet there were all those microaggressions every day that you had to sort of deal with the, you know, I remember I had, I had jurors who would tell me after a jury trial, you know, oh, we were so surprised you spoke English so well, oh, no. right? Or, you know, being mistaken oh, for the court goodness. reporter, you know, when the deposition starts. So we have all of those things. So, yeah. So Tina, we just have one final question for you. If you could leave our listeners with one final thought to remember. Uh, tell us what you're hopeful about right now. What makes you get up in the morning and do the important work that you're doing? Well, let me acknowledge it's a tough time, right? I think it still remains a very tough time for all of us, you know, during this unprecedented pandemic moment. So it's it's tough. I've been experiencing some of the toughness of, of being isolated, you know, that many of us are experiencing. Um, but I will tell you what gives me hope and keeps me up is is the enthusiasm and the activism that's out there. You know, I think people are rising to the occasion, um, to this moment. This is a transformational moment. 
and, you know, it was thrust upon us, you know, um, by, by nature <laughs> and, and it's a global transformational moment. And it is an opportunity for us to seize that moment and, you know, make a turn for the good, you know, and not go back to an old status quo that wasn't working for so many people, but to build really a new future, a new economic future, um, a new workplace future. Um, and, and, and I'm so that, that I'm thrilled by that opportunity that we have. And I'm thrilled by the energy that I see in so many sectors to do it. Tina, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. It's been a real joy. Gosh, Tina, such fantastic work you're doing. Oh, thank you. That was so powerful. Tina Chen is a force to be reckoned with. Here are a few points that I took away from today's conversation. And they all ladder up to Tina's main message, that women deserve a safe, fair, and dignified workplace. First, sexual harassment is a symptom of a workplace that is broken, one that keeps women out of positions of power. That's why when dealing with the issue of sexual harassment, we need to also fix the wider systemic issues that hold women back. Second, as we've said before in this series, now is the time to reframe our thinking about women. We need to ask ourselves, why does society often talk about women only in terms of what they look like, what they wear, or what their husbands do? That kind of thinking undermines all of us. It keeps us from envisioning women as managers, as directors, or as CEOs. Frankly, it keeps us from envisioning women as the leaders they actually are. Third, closing the wealth gap for women is imperative. That means giving women not just equal pay, but access to the jobs that come with higher pay. And it means advocating for workplace policies like parental leave and childcare. These kinds of interventions allow both women and men to go for the higher paying jobs. And if you want a free copy of the Time's Up Guide to Equity and Inclusion During Crisis, text the word LEADERS to 306-44. And join us next week when Carolyn and Deanna talk to spoken word poet and podcaster Amina Brown and consultant and author Tara J. Frank about the path to equality. Have a great week. You're listening to Seneca Women, conversations on power and purpose. Brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio, with support from founding partner PG. Listen to Seneca Women Conversations on Power and Purpose on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please support this podcast by telling your friends, subscribing, and rating us. For more information on Seneca Women, follow us on social media, visit our website, SenecaWomen.com, and check out the Seneca Women app, free in the App Store.